Welcome back to the Work For It podcast. I have an interview here with the one and only Brian Hinnenkamp. Great dude. We're going to have a good conversation. But before we get into the conversation, I want to bring up our sponsors. First off, we have Maritime Knife Supply. If you're a knife maker, go check out their stuff. They've got nice, cheap prices. They ship quick. And you can get whatever you need over at MaritimeKnifeSupply.com. Also, check out Baker Fortune Tool. If you're looking for some really cool Damascus, they're always coming out with just crazy, crazy stuff, high-end stuff. Take your stuff to the next level by getting yourself some Baker Fortune Tool steel. Also, I want to thank our Patreon supporters. Um, If it wasn't for you guys, we couldn't put on the show. Speaking of show, let's get into it. Brian Hinnenkamp, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. It's good to be here. Excited it's to hang out with you. It's good to have you here. Um, man, Tortuga Bladeworks. If that is not like just a name that stops and like grabs your attention, I don't know what will. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, I, uh, it comes from my uh, obsession with all things pirate. And, uh, <clears throat> and you know, at the time I was formulating a, a business name, I wasn't sure how many people would dig a a Hinnon Camp knife, so went with that and <laughs> stuck with it. So and, and I think it's created a, a a little bit of a brand that some people really enjoy. It's fun. It's very unique, and also like just the pirate theme. Though the way that I look at your knives is they're rustic, but they're elegant at the exact same time. It really feels like if if a modern day pirate built a knife, it is totally your style. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. That's exactly my my aesthetic. I think um, you'll see with a lot of the 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 play on uh, I think extremes. I like to try to capture. Uh, I love brute to forge, but I love crisp, you know, clean bevels right. and crisp lines, and that's what I'm always envisioning and going for, and kind of trying to refine that balance. Those two are so hard to make look good together yeah. because brute to forge, you're expecting it to be, you know, kind of a little little rough around the edges a little bit raw but yet somehow you just make it look so damn elegant it's it's really really interesting to see um so i guess my question of all of the things you decided to go with a pirate theme have have pirates been like an obsession since you were a kid um yeah to some degree i think exploring and you know the sea the ocean i was one of the kids that wanted to be a marine biologist and you know swim with dolphins and study whales and um, I was always really into uh, Native American culture as well so uh, interesting you know I grew up in the outdoors uh, Boy Scouts and vacation for my family was camping and um, so I always had knives on me as a tool and um, so a general fascination with the world and uh, but the ocean and just the vastness of that unexplored place to me was such an alluring thing so i think i was always drawn towards pirates in the hollywood sense of things because i think as i got older and got um, i got more into history in a in a real way and started studying history and pirates are a very different thing in reality than you know what we see in the in in hollywood but one um, of one of my little buzz questions over here is Okay, Jack Black, do you feel, like, what's your feeling on Pirates of the Caribbean? Is it good? Is it bad? Uh, I really like Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, okay. Different different parts of it, so, um, 
yeah, uh, I'd be fine if they did if they did more of them. I, I think it's enjoyable. Um, I'm more a fan of you know Black Sails and and some of those others that capture a little bit more of. Um, I don't know. They're they're all Hollywoodized, but uh, yeah, I like the Pirates of the Caribbean. I think uh, anybody feels pretty much invincible when the Pirates of the Caribbean theme's playing. You know, so <laughs> I, I, one I, of. One of the earliest things, like one of my favorite, this is totally out of left field, I I apologize, but in middle school band, like concert band, at the end, like the big goal at the end of the year, we were going to play the Pirates of the Caribbean theme. And that, like, first of all, like working our asses off to be able to play that theme and then being able to do it. Right. Like playing playing that theme like first of all when you're listening to that theme you feel invincible and then when you're playing it it's just a whole nother level so you know pirates pirates and then of course i didn't i specifically did not watch the movies until after the concert because then i feel like okay i'm i'm you know it's giving me like the carrot to work towards so then watching it is just i mean i'm surprised i didn't develop as much of a pirates fascination as you did sure yeah yeah, that's awesome. So, I guess, what is it about pirates, and what is it about you know the? Is it just the freedom? Is it the you know, what what's what's the big allure to you? Um, <clears throat> it's evolved over time. Um, yeah. I I got very fascinated with the age of exploration when I started looking at pirate history and trying to figure out what was real and what wasn't real from from the things and the characters we've seen in movies and whatnot and that really got me to to dig into the age of exploration and why why did explorers go and explore the way they did and the places they did and um there's so much history there that's deep and rich some of it's dark and awful some of it's uh, amazing and you know you know adventuresome and so you know the pirates uh, of every kind are intertwined into that and um i don't know i i also really started studying um the the go kind of golden age of piracy and the brethren of the coast and i was always drawn to the uh the pirate code they lived by and the way they uh, governed their ships where they were you know they were equal partners and um, everything they did and they really had a democracy and um, so I thought that that stuff was very fascinating to me and then um, I think being a you know a bladesmith it's just an era where you know pirate cutlasses and those types of weapons were are something they probably all carried and used and um, see it's a natural tie-in because some of those cutlasses and knives and stuff like that they're so iconic and so it's such a thing to you know covet and like want because it it harkens back to a more badass time in history where you know if if you wanted to you can jump on a ship and you know set sail and you know do what you want to do to survive and and be free right when you know the monarch was a lot more of a thing than it is now Um, You know, it's it's such an interesting it's an interesting little snapshot in time. And you said that you were, you know, you're studying the history of it. Um, Of course, there is Blackbeard and, you know, all of all of these mainstream pirates that, you know, most people will be somewhat familiar with. 
is there like a specific pirate that you like like a story of a guy that you like the most or some sort of obscure fact that maybe you could talk about a little bit and like maybe we could turn this into a little bit of a history podcast <laughs> um it's i don't know that's tough there i mean there are some there are a broad range of pirates so um everybody hears about Blackbeard and not as many people hear about um you know Hornigold and the the history of how some of those pirates came to be pirates um so I think that's one where it just was known as a great captain and a great leader and um again all of these are controversial you know people and positions that did some um, <laughs> some cutthroat things at times. Well, I um, mean, it's kind of the name of the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and they, it varied in who they worked for and how they contracted and then how they um, also fought for the freedom that they, um, you know, wanted as, as pirates and as, uh, you know, the communities that they were building. And um, so it's, it's pretty hard for me to pick one of those and there's just so many and then the other challenge with that is there's a lot of lore that's mixed in you know it's really hard to separate out what's true and what's you know what's not true and um, even digging through the accounts i kind of did a little bit of research before like trying to look up different different pirate themes and stuff like that and pirate stories and it's it kind of reminds me a lot of like japanese uh samurai and the mythology of it grew into something way more than probably what it was like the the japanese swords that you know the, it it's so ridiculous now it's like the it's not a real katana unless it can chop through a tank barrel right like right. It, it's stuff that is just absolutely ridiculous and you know with with the pirates it's kind of turned into its own form of mythology because you know some sometimes you know kind of like with with um, the Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, at the very beginning of the movie, you know, there's all these rumors about, you know, the Black Pearl, and it's all about the, you know, it never leaves anybody alive, but then, you know, Jack Sparrow (laughs) says, well, how the hell do we know the stories if nobody walked away alive? And it just kind of makes you realize that there's more, the the truth is not normally what we know. (laughs) There's so much more to it, or... Right. less to it and you have no way no, no way to know one way or the other yeah and sometimes we're disappointed when we find out what the truth is uh, uh, isn't that life <laughs> yeah i mean i i had someone that that brought that up to me uh you know i had a, a knife post about something and i'm just talking about the origin of this knife and you know it was unearthed in nassau and whatever and somebody had messaged me saying well how do you feel about uh you know pirates who were involved in slavery trade and um, yeah, I'm like, man, that sucks. Uh, <laughs> uh, and that's, it's part of history. It's part of what was going on in the world during that age of exploration. And yeah, there was, that was going on and some pirates were involved with that. So, um, so yeah, there's, it depends on what you focus on. And, um, so for me, I just, in the, in the bladesmithing part of it and the, um, I really love, I just, I look at, it's you know it's i I love building rough hard work tools that have that rustic character that give you the vibe of just yeah i could be part of this this crew and and grinding out the work on the sea and um yeah it's 
I don't know. It's fun and it's it's meant to be taken lightly and and then the other thing that I really like is the community that it builds. They're they're just people that love that um, aesthetic and I I have a lot of um, you know people who enjoy what I'm doing and they just really love the pirate vibe and they love connecting with each other over that. We all have style and preferences and um, so I I don't know I appreciate that and I really value. I think as makers, that's something that should be a goal of ours. You know, everybody is, we benefit from such an amazing community, but it's also, I think, our responsibility to, to participate in creating and furthering that community. And um, I think there's just so many, you know, flavors of that and niches for that and places for people to connect to different work and art. And uh, so that's just kind of my vibe. The community aspect of knife making in general, and then when you even specialize within that community to find the pirate lovers, I can see how, you know, as a whole, knife making in general, there's such a community around it. But then, you know, condensing that down, you know, it it just seems like it gets more and more supportive the more you get into it. Yeah. Yeah. And there, I mean, there is a maker for everybody. It's, yeah. uh, and, the guys who really get fanatical about my work love the kind of dark and gritty stuff, but appreciate, you know, kind of the passion. And then the, they, somebody was telling me the other day, they're like, you know, I love your work, but I also love Kyle Royer's work. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you're comparing <laughs> two, two entirely different sports there. Kyle Royer and me are playing different games. But I get what he was saying is he's talking about every single line on every single thing he makes is perfect and crisp right. and dialed. And then he likes how the imperfection and the grit and the, you know, th- that I put into mine are also dialed with intention in a different way. Again, not on the class of a Kyle Royer, <laughs> but uh, I understand now, what he's saying there. Now, I feel like there's something to that, though, with Kyle Royer, he makes works of art that... I guarantee you the vast majority of Kyle Royer's knives have never cut anything once they're given to the guest or to the customer. Sure. You know, it's just yeah. part of, you know, it's it's a work of art that is to a next level. Of course, you can take that knife and you can use it every day and it'll be a workhorse for the rest of your life, but you don't want to spoil the level of craftsmanship that went into it. Where on the other hand, you also put in a high, high level of craftsmanship, but it's geared towards something that is actually going to be used every day. Right. And that that is it's it's just to- something else entirely. Where it's a beautiful beautiful piece, but also a rustic piece. Where you don't feel bad where you go and use it and it gets a scratch. Well, that scratch is now a story. It's not something that ruins the blade. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good point. Somebody asked me recently, too, um, another smith, probably similar stage in their journey as me, but um, he asked me if I take it personally when somebody describes my knives as hard-use knives. Because in his mind, that term means maybe a less polished quality or caliber or, you know, um, in a different class, like a lower class of blade or something. And I said, no, I haven't thought of it that way. That is really, I can put, you know, a hundred hours into a blade for you and polish and to crisp up every single facet and angle. And I would feel the same way. Um, and I do put 
that much time and thought into, you know, most things I make, but I would really be sad if you didn't go use it because that's why I make my knives. And I put as much time and, you know, energy into the research around my heat treats and my construction and my geometries, because if those don't go perform for you, um, that defeats the entire purpose that I, you know, got into bladesmithing. And I mean, what really drew me to knives is they were a tool and I think they're beautiful. And, um, and you know, I buy knives from other knife makers. Um, I love to collect, but every single one of those gets used. doesn't matter if it's the nicest Damascus you've ever made, I'm going to use it. Um, cause that's where I get joy out of owning it too. Not just, you know, hanging them on the wall. Yeah. And there's, there's a thing about that is, you know, you are not only making knives to use, but you're buying knives again to, to use and put through the ringer. However, on the other hand, obviously your knives live up to it because people are coming back over and over and over again to get your stuff. And then also I'm looking through your reels and you've got this Damascus chef knife. It looks like a chef knife anyways. I can't see the rest of the blade, but you've got the tomato down there. And I have never seen someone <laughs> cut a tomato that thin before. Yeah, that that's... is like thinner than a piece of paper. Thin. <laughs> that Ridiculous. was a good test. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm actually just really cutting my teeth on culinary knives. That's, a, I think, a whole nother can of worms. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Get the hell out of here. No, you're really. just cutting your teeth on it and you're <laughs> I think yeah, it's really. performing that well and you're just getting into it. Well, I, I look at everything and everything I make, I look at it and I go, okay, I like this. I did this good. I don't like this so much. Next time, here's what I'm going to do a little bit differently. And that's kind of where I live with it. There's a piece of me that gets very satisfied in what I created and then a big piece of me that is really not satisfied and uh, honestly i'm not I, I don't share those things with you know my customers i do try to though even even on instagram because i i think that people put their you know shiniest thing out there and they're living their best lives and um i think that does a disservice to those of us trying to learn too as then we're looking at you see somebody who posts something and they're like oh this is my fifth knife or something and and it's, you know, it's amazing. And, and there's somebody else posting their fifth knife, which is a train wreck. Um, well, there's more to that story. There's more to how they Photoshop the picture. And so that's part well, of my I approach. Mean, I know, can the, show my fifth knife and no matter how much you Photoshop that thing, it's still a train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> but it all depends on the story of how you got to that fifth knife. You know, we, uh, we all learn different. We all were taught different some people made their first five knives in the shop of a master smith and then other people you know gutted it out in their garage for a while with minimal tools uh, and so there's always more to the story and so just, what's which side of that paradigm did you fall on um mine's complex because i started um again i was a kid and i was that kid that um my parents encouraged everything that, you know, I ever was interested in. They were very much like explore the world and uh, didn't put limits on me. So I'd, you know, one day be in the backyard, you know, climbing trees with things and jumping off the roof with, you know, hang gliders I made. And 
the God. Next, Hold next. on. Well, that didn't Hold work out on. well. <laughs> Come on. You can't just glide on past that one. Well, Ba-dooms. this uh, <laughs> this hang glider was a, uh, a triangle of, of uh, you know, crown molding with, a, I think, a plastic tablecloth staple to it. It provided no lift whatsoever. And you just jumped off the roof. How, t- how tall was that jump? It actually... To be honest, I talked to my little brother into doing the jump. So you bastard! <laughs> yeah. So that you know, it was a, a one-story house, so the typical okay. rancher style, and it was about probably halfway up to the apex. But um, you know, I I promised him all kinds of things and told him that he was going to glide over the fence into the neighbor's yard and land yeah. gently, and and if not, I would catch him. And then <laughs> the uh, the last thing he remembers is seeing me booking as he was yeah, falling falling straight to the ground and yeah oh sprained, my god sprained both of his ankles and uh, we yeah. created a core memory there but how old how old were you guys at that point I was probably twelve or thirteen um, I think he was eight okay so, all right yeah, yeah. sounds Great. like me and my brother yeah. <laughs> I made my brother do. Not quite that ridiculous of a thing, but other, other things. Yeah. Well, that, that was me, though. I was always making something. I was always... I'm very fortunate I didn't get injured with a lot of the things. I mean, I did, but not, not badly. But um, So I'd be out in the shop, and they let me use any tool I wanted. And um, so from the time I was probably 11 or 12, I was, you know, making very rudimentary knives out of mild steel things I found in the shop you know, my dad's shop and, um, I have a dagger still, which was probably the second knife I made that I made out of a, a piece of the tailgate of his, his custom Chevy truck at the time. And for years growing up, he was always frustrated that he couldn't find this. It was a custom hinge and, uh, he had the tailgate off and I didn't have the heart to tell him until I was probably 25 that I turned that into a knife. But, uh, <laughs> I still have that dagger somewhere. Um, <laughs> I feel like you need to give that to him or something. <laughs> I should. I should. So, obviously, you were you were making from a very young age. Um, can you recall the first time that you had the idea of making something and then turned around and made it happen? First time. That's tough. Um, as far as knives go, no, um, not not anything. just knives. Anything, the thing that turned your maker switch on. Like for me, um, it was working out in my grandpa's barn when I was maybe five or six years old, and you know they were making birdhouses all the time out of out of wood to sell at craft shows. And sure. of course, me being a little kid, I wanted to make a birdhouse too. So. You know, basically, I got a scrap piece of board and two, you know, thinner pieces of board and angled them to be a birdhouse shape and then drilled a hole in the center for the bird to go in. Even though the whole thing is a, you know, two dimensional thing, there's no house to it, but it's the, it was my first birdhouse. That was, that was the first time that I, you know, wanted to make something and I made it. Yeah, I probably can't identify the very first, but similar. It was, I think, exposure. So my dad was, um, had a lot of different jobs but his hobby was always fine woodworking so there was always this wood shop with projects and so from a super young age I was observing that and then helping you know sanding things and whatnot so I would um, my earliest memories of using tools independently I would 
go in and scrounge around find some wood and some nails and i'd make like a little end table or something for my mom and in reality i think it would be like four pieces of wood with a plywood on top and some nails you know this (laughs) but sure enough she would bring it into the living room and display it as an end table and uh, i'd be you know i'd be proud of that and um so i was never afraid to try things and just fail miserably um and i think that was really the spirit that you know led me into this Um, and back back then there were just not a lot of resources so i didn't i think i had a, a native american project book from when i was in boy scouts that had a rudimentary knife project that you make out of a saw blade Um, and I remember studying that thing over and over and just dreaming about making that and then um, when I was in high school I took metal shop and the first knife that I actually made that was uh, heat treated was that one and of course it was in high school in metal shop you know in the 90s we didn't have we didn't have issues with weapons in school sure, then, sure. so I made I made that in metal shop with the help of a, a, a shop teacher, and uh, he taught me a little bit about metallurgy, and that's when I learned, oh, things actually need to be hardened, because um, everything I'd made to that point was, you know, not hardened. It was just knife-shaped. Right, um, right. Yeah, and then I think I made two or three knives in high school, um, and then I didn't really touch it until early 2000s um i was uh, i was actually making custom guitars um and i i wasn't aware that you made guitars i did so i've, I've always played guitar since i was really young and i i went through kind of a phase just as a maker where i've my my ability to make things and create something that was satisfying and successful was has always kind of been there um and just because I have that tenacity, and I tend to study things heavily. Uh, maybe that's some type of OCD. I don't know, but um, it's anytime I have a new hobby, I really immerse myself in the the theory of it and the how and the why. Um, it I don't wait though to to try it. I start trying immediately, and then um, just with guitars, I played guitar my whole life. My taste in guitars uh, was much more significant than my uh my wallet and then uh (laughs) sure but it combined with i think my maker curiosity and i one day said you know what people make these and i'm going to figure out um you know what goes into that so that's kind of led me down that road my my grandfather had a music shop when i was growing up that he he started himself and you know he he worked on this music shop and built it and built it throughout his entire life so I, throughout the summers, every, you know, every summer I'd go and help him in the music shop. Yeah. So through that, I've learned a very, I, I can't play the guitar, but I know a little bit more about them. Um, so tell me, I, I know that there's, you know, brighter sounding guitars, there's dark, I, I'm assuming you, you made acoustic guitars or did you go straight to like electric guitars and go crazy? I actually I started with acoustic, which is a lot okay. harder to build than the electric. So much harder because yeah. the tonality of the 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 cavity of the body, you know, really yeah. depends on you know so many different shapes and depths and you know what you're making it out of. Yep, yep. It's uh, it is it's massive, and uh, 
everything uh, the combinations of wood the thicknesses of things the the geometry of how you brace things how you carve the braces um, right and then just the you know the, the craftsmanship and then on, at the micro level from everything from you know bindings to the neck joints and the angles then um, I mean this is a which I loved the idea of this is something that was a tree uh, at one point and now you're turning it into a musical instrument it's going to live a completely different life mm -hmm. as a as a different object um at the but the forces that are applied on that like a guitar an acoustic guitar well all guitars are uh, they're they're structured to fight this uh constant uh, force to implode like they're trying to destroy themselves under you know a couple hundred pounds of string pressure right tension um, Right. Yeah, so you're balancing those things with some, some very very fine angles um, to otherwise the playing experience for the player is awful, uh, even painful. Um, right. So I just I loved the I loved playing really good guitars and I played better and I when you pick up an incredible instrument as a player it 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 opens up your ability to grow and learn and play better and. Um, so I, I loved that, and then connecting with the transformation of those things into something really beautiful that then makes music um, was just a, a really, really fun uh, path to go down. The other thing that I was always really fascinated about is, especially with high-end acoustic guitars, as they age, the tone of them shifts. It's, yep. it's a subtle thing you really have to listen to really hear. But if you play a new model of the guitar in a guitar that's 60 years old, right next side by side, it almost, it just sounds, a, it's warmer. It's, it's just, a, has a different quality to it. Yep. Do any of those guitars that you first made, have you seen any of that shift in them? Have you like been able to continue playing them? Yeah, for sure. A, a couple of them. Um, it, you know, I still have my very first guitar too, which is, <laughs> again, uh, you know, it's overbuilt, uh, heavy as can be, but even that has evolved with time. And, um, but you know, it happens from the moment you first string a guitar up, the, mm -hmm. the initial voice of a guitar isn't perfect. Um, so they, I mean, they're, they're not unlike having a baby where it's, it makes some funny noises when, you know, <laughs> it's first born. <laughs> and then, so in the first hour, sometimes they change. And in the first couple of days they change. And then, yeah, through the years, um, the vibrations, there's so much science that's understood and so much that isn't around the evolving of tones and, um, the way the wood actually can molecularly change as it, you know, oxidizes over time, but is, you know, being vibrated by, specific frequencies and it, it all impacts it in really complex ways i know i'm going on this rabbit hole and i promise i'll bring it back to you <laughs> um one of the things i watched a youtube video all about these devices that they have they have designed where you put this little it looks like a little box inside of a new guitar and basically it just constantly vibrates and like gives this tone and right. the like supposedly that is supposed to quicken the aging so that you get that warmer tone right within you know months instead of years right yeah and basically you, you they have these warehouses of all these new guitars that just have this tone where you open the door and like you walk into this warehouse and it's just like constantly buzzing and all that but it's it's just full of 
these guitars that they're they're aging quickly so that they can sell a new guitar that plays like a 60 year old guitar right and it's it's something that i've it was just like the it's something that opened up my mind to you know i i've always known that these guitars age but i've never understood why and it's literally just the playing the oxidizing the the vibrations the tension Right. It's all it, it's all a balance, and it turns into some really really beautiful music. Yep, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, it's it's true, man. And I don't I haven't followed the science, you know, in a long time under what they had been studying. But um, I think back when I was looking at kind of that resonance theory around that stuff, they they hadn't had any good studies. But I had heard people were doing that, so I don't. I don't know what it is based on if they've got any you know actual decent studies now to prove anything or uh, not really sure where it's at you know you kind of have to take it all with a grain of salt because they're trying to sell you this box to that will age your guitar so you know sure but they were showing like this is this is one that's brand new and this is one that had it in for a month and you can totally like and then here's one that's been aged the exact same model guitar that's been aged for 50 years or 60 years or whatever it was Right. And the first one sounds bright, the next one sounds warmer, and the, the old one sounds exactly like the one that's been aged for, you know, sure. months with this. It's it's just a really cool, you would never expect it, you know, it's it's right. such a bizarre thing. Yep. I don't know, it's it's just one of those things that even, even with the patina of a fine chef knife, you know, it starts off nice and bright and shiny. But as you use it, it, it builds, you know, the patina of where you're where you're cutting and how you're using it. And it it gets more or gets more, you know, patinaed and grungy, but it brings out a different type of beauty that if you're really into it, you just find. I don't know. It just is very comforting. Yep. No, I 100 percent agree with that. And I mean, that's. Stuff we've been talking about—that's the story. It's why I love pirates. Why I love knives. It's I love the history, and it's the story. And that's a patina or an aged spruce top on a guitar with a cracked lacquer finish. There's a story, and it's lived a life, and it's seen things. And, yeah. Or I like you that. see, you see like Elvis, one of Elvis' guitar, and you can see the boot buckles scratches or the the belt buckle scratches on the back right. of it, and the oh well, you can see this chip where he dropped it at this you know place, and yep. it's it just it's one of those things where you you get a tool that will last you your entire life, and as you use it, all the scratches, all the dings, all the patina, it at the end of your life, you're gonna have something that aged with you. Yep. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's why yep. we do these types of things. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yep. man. So, Brian, you have one health. Like, most or some knife makers, you know, they are either full-time knife makers or they have a full-time job in knife making as their, their hobby, passion, side gig, side hustle, however you want to say it. I don't know anybody in on this planet that has your full-time job and also produces knives at the level that you're doing so what the hell do you do as the er director yeah so i'm the director of emergency and trauma services at a, a pretty big really tra- low pressure center. stuff right yeah yeah it's funny i mean it's funny that i even ended up in this area of healthcare. just you know like a little bit I don't know, knife makers, we tend to be a little introverted and like our space and our privacy. And I work in 
this front lines crazy everyone is type a everyone is an adrenaline junkie and that that is not me um how did i end up there you know in the er and then how did i end up running it it's a it's always fascinating to me um well let's let's take us on the journey like how did you first of all what pushed you towards the medical field um really that i think my mind my my need to learn and understand kind of the world around me. And, um, I think if, if that's the way your brain works enough in overtime all the time, you end up in some of the more challenging, you know, people that go into mathematics, I always thought they were nuts, but as I got older, I understood it. There's something that that satisfies in them. And so for me, like problem solving and, analyzing things is is very soothing and very fulfilling um but then i am i'm really wired to care for others and you know serve people and connect with people um and that's just health sciences and healthcare in general kind of marries the two you know science and and people um and that's what i've looked for in every job i've ever had is just kind of how how will i I need something that challenges me enough where I'm always learning. If I don't feel dumb at some point every day, I'm not satisfied. I need to, I need to have a steep learning curve and, um, but, but also people to serve and care for. And, um, I, you know, so I, I was early on, I tried, you know, first responder work, um, with the fire department and EMS and I loved it. I just, um, but, you know, you, you respond to things in the field, you problem solve quick, and then you deliver them to the hospital, and that's where they get care, and that's where solutions happen, and um, and I was really drawn to that. I wanted to stay there, and, you know, what's going to happen, and how can I help, and uh, that led me to start, you know, looking, I, you know, I had a lot of other jobs, uh, you know, in my, you know, in my 20s, and um some in like management, basic things like worked at Home Depot and, you know, ran the night crew and stuff like that. Um, while I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life and um, we had started a family and, uh, you know, I have three kids and live here in Seattle and the pace of life in this area is, it's challenging. You know, I, I grew up on the east side of Washington State over in Spokane and pace of life is a little slower and you see you're not in a hurry and um in the in the area we live now it's like you work during the week and then you huddle with your family on the weekends and um maybe that stage of life too a little bit as we started having family um we just kind of you know moved inwards a little more so um so I really started looking at, you know, where do I land now? I got to be a grown up, and I was looking at medical school versus nursing. Um, sure. And um, just what what would be the undertaking for each one? And um, so I was kind of fulfilling the, um, you know, track towards figuring out that and doing prerequisites all over again because I'd done some college early on, and then I kind of had to go repeat a lot of it because um, these programs are competitive. So um, so I was in that and then ultimately said, um, I want to see my kids that are heading into high school and middle school. If I went to medical school, I'd be in residency and I'd miss a lot of that. So I right. um, went into nursing 
and um, during nursing school I again ended up in the ER which is where I I figured I would be because that's where I had kind of found family before um, landed in the ER love love ER medicine and the population we serve is just a melting pot in Seattle of every culture and you know every socioeconomic level and status and um, so super challenging um, we're a high volume kind of moderate acuity trauma center so we see a ton of everything so the good the bad and the and the easy um, as well just lots of it yeah um, and uh, so I, I came up through the ranks there from you know the floor then into leadership and and now I care for the people that care for our community and that's um, so that has to be another level of fulfilling like when you're when you're in the trenches and you're helping people every day you know you never of course i'm i'm speaking from ignorance here of course but um you know when you're hands-on with it you're hand head down fixing problems you're constantly you know you're never coming up for air you're constantly working and you i can imagine where you would just get buried by it where now you're you're helping the people who are down in the trenches and you're making their jobs easier so that they can provide the care better it's it's just a different level yeah well t to be honest i'm <laughs> i think i'm more buried as a leader than i was well yeah a I mean, staff nurse it's the uh, higher up you go the more stress and the more work there is it's it's yeah. a different type of stress and it's a different type of work but it's still yeah challenging. well you get you get very good at what we do from a skill set standpoint. Um, and so I, I rose really quickly just as a strong clinician and I was a really, really good, um, you know, trauma nurse and ER nurse. And then, um, it's a challenging environment though for everybody that goes into that also goes into it because they care for people and they want to take care of people. But that's an environment that also assaults all of those things in you because you're seeing a concentrated you know version of the worst of the worst um, and just as humans that that assaults those really good things in us so it's very easy to to see people as the next problem to solve and not the next person to care for and that's something i maintained a lot and that's ultimately what led me to leadership was i i was i'm looking at my peers and saying I want to make a difference and help them be healthy in what they're doing so they can do it better, but they can also be healthy and whole. And, um, and that's, that's one of the biggest challenges, you know, that I deal with day to day now. So obviously there are HIPAA laws, so you can't give us nitty gritty details, but can you give us a little bit of a sense of what it's like to be in the trenches at a, as an ER, you know, worker? Um, like what, what type of pace, the type of like, you know, not necessarily a typical, typical day, but tell us about what it's like to, you know, be one of those workers. Yeah. Well, it's never boring. Um, you get to see, I mean, crazy medical things, but then also just the craziness of humanity. Um, and so, yeah, it's exciting and really interesting. You never know what's going to come in. Um, our, you know, our pace, the general pace of emergency care is people come in, they get triaged and we figure out 
couple things can happen. You can get a couple treatments and go home, or you can get admitted, um, or you can get transferred out. And that's pretty much all that happens in an ER, and it just is how complex your care is. Um, and we, you know, we take it as it comes. So, um, and every single day you'll see something you haven't dealt with before, whether it's, right. you know, an illness that's just bizarre or somebody walks in with a bag of fingers on ice or, you know, <laughs> it's, it happens. And, uh, we always say nothing surprises me anymore, but things always surprise me. It's, yeah. uh, I stopped saying that. So, so I guess kind of two different things. So when I was working in, in my knife shop, I was drilling, I was drilling some, um, blades, like put, putting holes in blades on a knife that was already beveled. Stupid. I know <laughs> the damn, and I didn't have it clamped down because it was still relatively early. Um, I, I just wasn't thinking. So I'm drilling it in and all of a sudden it helicopters and on the tip, I forget which finger it is. One of, one of the tips, I think it was the index pink finger on my left hand. Yeah, yeah, there's the scar. Um, so the index finger on my left hand, I um, basically that was the one thing that got caught in the blade. And the the pad of my finger was almost completely severed off. Uh-huh. And it, it and it's not like it, it wasn't going to be life or death or anything, but it was it was a deep enough cut where, you know, it wasn't closing up and I, you know, held it together for 45 minutes and it still wasn't closing up and like so Emily's mom was an uh, was a nurse, is a retired nurse. So I went to her and I was like, okay, you know, is this worth going in to get stitches? And she said, well, we should, probably should have been there a half hour ago. <laughs> and uh, so we went in, and of course we she wrapped it all up and whatever, and we got in, and they go um, go into the ER and they give, ask you the questions, you know, what's going on? Yep. And I say, well, I cut my finger, and the first response is, is it still attached? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, oh, and of course that makes me feel, oh shit, you know, I probably shouldn't be here. But <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's just the the deadpan look on their face of, oh, is it still <laughs> attached? Like that's a normal question to ask. Yeah, it is. That's kind of what I was alluding to with the other things. The stuff we normalize, we don't realize it happens to us either. But the stuff right. that became normal, that's why we're always really good at ruining Thanksgiving dinner on accident. What? You know, when, <laughs> just when telling somebody, stories. Well, yeah, it's you learn early on when, before you realize the impact. It, something switches in you where you see a lot of this stuff, and it's become normalized, but you don't realize it. So somebody will throw something out there and say, "Hey, what's the worst thing you've ever seen?" And you tell mm, them. That's and a question you probably shouldn't ask. You well, you learn to not answer it honest because the the worst things I've seen are things that make you not feel good, um, and they're they're really dark parts of humanity and um so then you always think of a funny thing or somebody you know stuck something in their butt and those are kind of the and traumas and stuff that are interesting uh which we see a ton of that and um, so i don't (laughs) i'm super drawn to ask okay then what was the worst thing you've ever seen but like you just said you don't necessarily want to share the worst so what is what is a story that you like to tell? Like, is is there a, a you know when that question is asked? Like, what is your go to story? Yeah, well, I'll answer a couple ways. Uh, for those that are curious with healthcare workers in their life that know this or don't, um, so usually, especially in the ER setting, is we're forward facing, community facing department of every health system. So you deal with 
all of the other things uh, are, you know, uh, sexual trafficking and um, mm. abuse of children. And so you oh. see, you see the, the criminal side of those things and then the medical side of those, which can be really dark things. And so when you ask me, what's the worst thing ever, it also includes, so what did I take away from it that really is stuff I relive? And a lot of it has to do with loss in children and seeing parents experience loss they shouldn't um, in horrible ways. And so, so it's a different definition. And that's why I just say sometimes when we just let it loose, it's shocking to people. And, um, but, uh, you know, I, I have seen, that's why I, I, I uh, tell everybody, that's why I don't have a buffer in my shop too. I, I did see somebody who was killed by a buffer. Oh, that, wow. uh, grabbed a piece of work they were working on and threw it through their aorta, um, which was, I mean, it's rough. I immediately got rid of my buffer after that. Um, now I've, I've heard a similar story. I think it was on knife talk podcast. I, I, it could have been on one of the other ones where a person was making a, a titanium chopstick set and they're buffing it on the buffer and it got caught and it flipped around and it went straight through their heart. Yep. And it's just, yeah, and they, they crumple and their wife sees them later on that night when they don't come home. Yep, exactly. And, you know, that buffing, that buffing wheel, it it's something you see in so many, like my, my grandpa has a couple buffers and it's just like, oh, well, that's, that's just a tool that my grandpa has. It can't be that dangerous. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They, and it's, it's just in a heartbeat. Um, yeah. It's, <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel it's, like I should grab my trombone. Wah, oh, I, <laughs> I mean, every I posted a reel about that the other day, just talking about. Yeah, Jason Knight told me that I was in his shop, and he's like, "Hey, everything in here wants to kill you. None of your, none of these tools respect you." And that always stuck with me because, you know, I'm I have a set of processes that I go through uh, to be safe, and I am diligent about. Here's when I put these glasses on, or this face shield, or you know, this apron, and. Uh, I'm just a person of routines. And, uh, the other day I was like filming something. I jumped over on the grinder and then I started watching the footage and I have like a flannel on that's hanging down two inches from my, one of the wheels on my grinder. Mm. And I'm going, man, it's, it's a heartbeat of, you know, a second where you make one, one decision going, I'm just going to do this real quick. Or I'm going to grab my angle grinder and just, this is an eighth, eighth inch pin. I'm just going to, you know, clip it off really quick. And, um, those are the people that come into my ER with a piece of angle grinder sticking out of their forehead. Yeah. Um, that split second. So my next question before you answered the, the buffer and the, I guess now the angle grinder, is there anything like maker related? Have you seen makers come in with something that have turned into lessons? I guess you've already said the buffer, but is there any other lessons that you've learned from the ER about your shop? Yeah, I do see, um, well maker specific even forging um i now i always purge my gas lines had a i had a guy come in who had a forge explosion and uh and it, it was just because something caused a spark um uh, and something malfunctioned and um fire department ultimately said they thought it had something to do with not purging his the gas line after he was done forging and turned everything off Go ahead and, and explain what purging the gas lines is. So just after you shut your forge down, like I, I would always just turn it off at my forge and I would leave the propane tank on 
Um, and so then there is, there's gas in the line between my forge and the, and the propane tank. And then I, um, I started turning it off at the tank. There's still propane in your, in your gas line. And same thing with, you know, oxyacetylene torches. And so after turning it off at the propane tank, then I go back to the forge and turn on the valves and any gas in the line leaves. So now there's no gas uh, anywhere other than your tank and then everything's purged. That is a pro tip because I always, I turn it off at the forge and then I turn it off at the tank. And I thought I was being safe because my thought is, well, what if, what if the shutoff valve at the forge breaks or, you know, malfunctions or whatever, and it leaks and right. something sparks or whatever. I guess I didn't realize, I didn't think about the, the internal within the line propane. Yeah, I think something else has to malfunction to really yeah, cause still. a cause an explosion. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's and, a one know, in I, a million. But there's more than a million knife makers out there. Yeah, well, and I brought it up to a guy that um, I get my tanks filled from, and he's like, he's a welder, but he said, yeah, you always purge your lines, like he like it was a a daily basic practice. And I just say, yeah, nobody's ever told me that. So right, there's um, there's a million of those little things that you know, the old timers or, you know, people who have been working in whatever for a long time. Oh, well, that's just second nature. But right. because a lot of us knife makers are coming in from, you know, YouTube knowledge, or right. I'm just figuring it out myself, you don't learn those things. Yep. Yeah, it's true. Interesting. Yep. Interesting. So Brian, um, obviously you, you have a lot of the, the pirate theme is there some sort of a project that you've always wanted to try that you just haven't had the time for or haven't had the order for that is like, this is, this is the project I've had on the back burners forever. And I've always wanted to give it a, give it a go. Um, I have a few, uh, I have one that I, a funny one that I posted recently, which is, uh, um, it's, it's actually what got me back into bladesmithing, um, my oldest son we used to you know play call of duty together and there's a knife on there called the carver it's a big you know tactical chopper thing and uh, my son taylor came to me one day he's like hey we should make a carver and uh that ended up turning into um us just starting to make knives together and i picked up a grinder and kind of rekindled my my love of knife making which is what led to where we're at now ultimately i never made the carver though and that was our original plan uh, so here we are with a business and everything and we've never made the knife that we were planning on making you know when i got a grinder for it um and then uh so we just i just posted something about that the other day because i there's another tactical knife somebody was asking me if i could recreate from call of duty and um i've never really done that type of work where I look at something else and go recreate it. Um, yeah. And there are a few um, that for me also just the, the Crocodile Dundee Bowie is a piece <laughs> of my childhood. And it's, it's what got me into like loving big knives and I think more knife collecting. Um, and there was no, you know, there was no Crocodile Bowie back in the day. There, there's a company that makes one now, but I've, I'd never gotten one, but that's, it's always been an iconic thing for me. It would be very personal. I don't think I'd ever make one of those for somebody else. I don't see a, a lot of people demanding those. Um, so those are kind of personal ones for me. But um, 
I, I really want to start getting into some, some swords. Um, I've got two cutlasses in, in process and, um, I want to see where that takes me. Um, you know, I'm not getting really orders for those. I have some people who will snatch up the cutlasses as soon as I drop them, you know, just cause they want a Tortuga cutlass, but sure. Um, I mean a Tortuga cutlass, come on now. Yeah, that I just mean, it, sounds like the most badass thing ever. It needs to happen, and yeah. uh, so right now I'm, I'm planning Maybe some a black pearl on that handle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's actually what's, what's going to happen. I got a pretty oh, cool. Oh no, shit! Uh, Come on, I was just screwing around. No, it's I got I have a plan for some black pearl on one of them. Um, going to do a big D guard that has a you know an octopus theme to the guard with tentacles and everything. Um, so I'm working on on that right now um it'll be this summer before i get get that one finished though because right now i'm working on um i'm working on orders still i closed my books last year um it was um i mean it was great i we i have more orders than we knew what to do with and then that became a thing i think that was really just stressful going i work you know a a really unpredictable rough you know full-time job and I bladesmith really just because I love it and it it keeps me you know balanced and um, fulfilled and it is my it's free therapy and it is there's so much joy in it for me so um, but having a back order I hate I hate keeping you know customers waiting um, so I I ended up getting a pretty big backlog and I try to turn things around within um, about 90 days of order and and then all of a sudden I was backlogged more than a year so I closed my books last year worked through a lot of orders um, and then I try to do open drops at the same time and uh, it's it's been complex so I'm looking forward to finishing out the orders that I have I just have a couple left I got a bunch of people who are I don't know, it's tough. So I closed my books, but I got people reaching out. So I put them on kind of a waiting list for when I reopen my books. They're basically on my books, I guess. Right. <laughs> so. That's a that's a soft book closing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it's just tough. You know, you got, it's, it's so humbling when people are excited about what you're doing and they want to own something from you. And it's just, you feel awful because I don't have enough time to do it all. And I want to, um, and I want them to all have the opportunity to, to do a build together and so and not get buried but i also don't want to keep them waiting um it's a tough thing and um and then also the way that i have to balance like our our business and our communities on social media and so the way we have to manage social media accounts is challenging uh, along with producing work it's almost another full-time job and um so that's challenging for me with customers so they see so say you're on my waiting list, waiting for a knife, you know, yours is up next, but you see me posting other content, you know, what do you do with that? Um, well, and- I mean, you know, I, it, it's just with, with the social media stuff, even if it's a knife that you made months or years ago, you know, it's, I, I feel like if people are that level of nitpicky, oh, well, you're supposed to be working on mine. Why are you posting? Like, come on. You're right. trying to run a business here. Right. <laughs> I, I don't, if, first of all, I don't think that there actually, there are customers that are actually thinking that. That's just something that you and I tell ourselves. 
Like sure. we're, we're over analytical on ourselves. But on the other hand, if they are actually thinking that, well, I mean, screw that guy. Right, right. <laughs> you know, don't mean me to be while. rude, but like, no, it's, it's talk, true. take a long walk. It took me a little while as a maker, as I, as I started getting orders and, and all of that. Initially I was really catering to the, to the customer, just the customer's always right. And, um, it took me a while before I started saying no to some people, you know, on some things and then, um, and then getting burned a few times or having some, some rough interactions. And I already looked at it and said, I'm going to make what I want to make. And if you want to buy it, then cool. And, uh. It seems as if you're ripe to be in the perfect situation that every knife maker wants, where you just make what you want and you have the customer base to that'll buy it. Right. And I I think to answer your previous question about what I want to make, do I have this something? That's actually my goal right now is to finish these orders out. There are some people that have reached out with some cool ideas. Um, You know, if you've looked through my stuff, I... I, I do a lot of stainless sand my um, yes and that got really popular um, I spent a lot of time kind of refining my process with that and um, really loved what I was doing but then other people did too and that's great and then everybody wants it and so there was a little bit of a time where I was getting a little burnt out on stainless sand my um, I spent some time last year refining my processes and just trying to streamline it to get um, really f- just faster and, and have the same results. And, uh, that has greatly improved my, my satisfaction with that work. Um, I, f- I feel like some of it is a self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, if you do something, that's what people want because that's what they're seeing. Right. So if you do San Mai, then you're going to get more orders for San Mai. And then when you finish those and post those, then it's just like a snowball effect. Right. Where if you do the opposite, where you just make what you want, and then people will see that and say, oh, my God, that's so badass. I never would have thought of that. And then you get orders for that. Yeah. You know, I noticed that, you know, with blade shapes, when I first started off, I was doing these five inch choppers and I was getting order chopper after chopper after chopper. And then I did the EDC three and I refined that to where it's where it's my finger hole EDC knife. And then I was getting order after order for that. Right. And it's just like as you post things, people see it and if you don't vary up your post, then you're just gonna be getting the same thing over and over again because that's that's what they see and that's what they want. Right. It's an interesting it's an interesting way that, you know, especially it like you just said, it it creates a situation where you can get burnt out on things. Yeah. I'm at a place with those where I'm really enjoying, like I said, part of it's my processes. So, um, and on, on my Instagram, I'm actually going to try to, I don't do YouTube longer format stuff. Um, and I don't spend a ton of time on Facebook either. Like I have a Facebook account for Tortuga, but it's funny. If you look at my followers on Instagram versus Facebook, you can see where I put, you know, most of my, uh, posting efforts and, sure. um, really reflects in the user engagement and the user base, uh, the followers rather. Um, so there's, there's the new format on Instagram, you know, Instagram offers you different, you know, extra whatever. So like real bonuses or which I don't have that program, but I just got offered the subscriber, um, program, which I'm a little split on what to do with it, whether I, 
Uh, I, I also look at it and go, oh, you know, what do I have to offer somebody that would subscribe for exclusive content? And then do I have the time to make exclusive content? Um, but in kind of in the spirit of trying to play along with Instagram too, because there's a lot of challenges with that platform, but it is where a huge number of my, um, my customer base is, um, you know, I'm pretty careful with that. So, uh, I did sign up for the, uh, subscription service, which I think I'm going to drop it to like two bucks. So it's super minimal, the lowest you can charge. And then I'm looking at doing some long format content to post on there around my San Mai process, I think is the mm. first one that I started filming where, again, I look at it and go, I don't know who am I to teach anybody anything, but I guess what I can do is show you what I do. And if you like how I do it, that's what I could teach you. So, well, I've um, never made sand mice. So that is, that is more than worth two bucks a week or a month or whatever it is, you know, yeah. for me, that's, that's more than worth it. Yeah. For me though, it's really important. You guys talk about this, you know, on, uh, you know, on your podcast is just bringing value and I'm not going to ask for somebody's hard earned money. Um, if I'm, if I don't, know that I can confidently bring them value for that. So I'm still figuring that out. I, I mean, I just turned that on this last month and uh, just kind of making some plans and started filming some stuff for it. I know this is something that Brian House always harps on, but, you know, sometimes you have, you'd be surprised at how much your your fans or your followers or however you want to see them just want to support you. Sure. You know, if you if you put up an option for two bucks a month, you'll be surprised at how many people, you know, the value that you bring just making your normal post is worth that much to them and they want to see you succeed. And, you know, right. it's yeah, I mean, it gives them a certain amount of validation like, hey, I'm I'm helping that guy. Right. I'm I am supporting him in my own small way. And that's that's worth it to them. And it's worth it to you. Right. I don't know. I don't yep. know. Yep, no, so I, I see here, speaking of your Instagram, I see here that you're an ABS apprentice. So can you, can you talk, can you give me some of your ideas about your test knives? Um, yeah, I'm still making plans. So okay. the, well, let's workshop a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at a lot of what I'm, I'm have made and historically, I've just not done a lot of, uh, hidden tang knives. I, I like them. I just have not spent a lot of time there. And to really start planning my uh, my journey Smith knives, which I'll be coming up kind of into my eligibility window um, this next year, um, or actually it's this year, but I'm just, I'm not quite ready there. So I'm going to have to kind of change paths and p put a lot more time into that. And um so that's one of the things, again, to kind of answer that previous question this year, some of the stuff I want to do there. I wanted to work on, um, I'm learning integrals, um, and then I want to shift focus, uh, do more hidden tanks, and just really start focusing on, you know, fit up around, you know, guards and things like that. I've done a number of them, but not with, you know, that, the ABSI or any measure of, um, um, that, that type of expectation or that scrutiny, you know, so, which in my mind takes a different type of study and setup and execution. Sure. And, you know, the ABS style is more catered towards the Kyle Royers of the world than, than right. the, you know, Brian Hinnekamp's of the world. Right. 
It so is. it is it is a total different it's it's a different mindset that you have to approach it with. Yep. And I th- I think it's probably a really important one for me to do though as well. Um the more I just I look at establishing our place in the community and um you know, you got to show that's part of it is you got to show that you can do that level of fit and finish. You can do that style. Um for me though, picking the ABS or my journey with knives will be, I want them to be a different style, not necessarily the ABS style. Um, and I don't know what that looks like yet. Um, and that's why I've, I've a little bit held off because, um, I've, you know, I've had some, some people recently, which is super humbling when they say, I recognize your style. I see a knife and I know it's yours. Um, that's awesome. That is that's a goal. Um, it really is a professional goal of mine to have a, a visual style and you be able to recognize it without seeing my logo or my name. Um, I don't necessarily agree that I've reached that. Um, and I don't know if I, when I would feel like I did, but, um, well, so just little... like anything, we are our biggest, our own biggest sure. critics. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's a important part of what drives me to, do my best on every knife too though that uh and i also don't apply the the same you know criticism of other people if i was as harsh to other people as i am to myself i wouldn't have any friends in the world (laughs) (laughs) Um, sure sure so have you done your your um performance test yet nope not yet no so so have you thought put thought process because that obviously doesn't need to be you know, up to the level, like the, you don't need to get all of the perfect grains or the right scratch strokes in the perfect, what yada, yada, yada. Um, yep. so if you thought about what you want to do for that test? Yeah. So I've sketched up, you know, what I want to forge out and I've kind of tentatively made plans. And I think I'm going to try to do my performance test late this summer and then wow. look at testing for journey, um, at blade next year. Uh, well in 2024 so um so my plan there i've sketched a few times what my performance knife would be and um and i've i've played with some of the heat treat on some other things that were not intended to be a performance test and done some bend tests and snap tests and so i I really i have done some you know work towards some of those pieces Mm -hmm. um and then um i'm kind of waiting you know to see as far as where I test, either uh, either here with David Lish or or I'll head back down to Tennessee and spend some time with Jason. Um, I'm waiting a little bit to see when he's back up and running in the new shop and um, was talking with him about doing uh, going down and doing some integral integral work and training and which would be a blast if I if I work that out later in the summer then I might. Um, see if I can just do my performance test with him down there. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, Brian, I want to thank you for sitting down with this great conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed every single moment of it. Uh, Brian, where can people find you? So you can find me at uh, Tortuga Blade Works on Instagram and then Tortuga Blade Works on Facebook as well. I do have a website, a .com website. Um, You can reach me through there. via the messaging app as well. I imagine that's tortugabladeworks.com. That's correct. Awesome. Guys, go check them out. Thank you again, and I hope you all have a fantastic working week. 
yeah, go check out Tortuga, Tartu, Tortuga Blade Works. Oh, I'm fumbling at the end. My bad. Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, right. I was good the entire way through, and then my tongue just got in the way with TortugaBladeWorks.com. Oh, oh, man. Now I feel bad. I feel, I feel like I just did you a disservice. <laughs> no way. That was fun, man. Work for it.